you know, I kind of grew up in the industry, you know, listening to the playback of a Studer A80 half inch playing back through a Neve console through big JBL bi-radial monitors. And it just sounded awesome. And you yeah. always want to try to get back to that. Don't necessarily compare your music to, you know, the latest, greatest, you know, pop record that's squashed down to an MP3. You want it to be dynamic. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Vance Powell, Glenn Rosenstein, Michael Wagner, Ray Kennedy, Buddy Miller, John McBride, and Alan Parsons. What do all these rock stars have in common other than that they should be on this podcast? They all have something great to say about Mic Tech microphones. Check out Mic Tech Audio at M-I-K-T-E-K audio.com slash artists. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Alan Douches, a Grammy award-winning music mastering engineer who has been in the professional audio engineering business for 30 years. He's worked on over 12,000 albums with various artists in almost every musical genre. He owns and operates a state-of-the-art mastering studio and 24-track analog digital recording and mixing facility, West West Side Music. Is that right? It's two Wests? It's West yeah, West that, Side? I love it. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's a, yeah that's, that story's too long. But yeah, we, you, know, you, you pick a name for your studio, just sometimes you're not thinking properly and, hey. and then it's, and then it sticks and you start getting credits and you go, oh, I better keep this for a while. So you know, you that's know. a good one. It's better than my band name, which was enormous Richard, but that's a whole nother topic. We <laughs> go to another time. All right, yeah. so, so I'll keep rolling here. Alan has sat in on many professional panels at music festivals, has been hired to speak at various colleges like William Patterson and Johns Hopkins university. His passion for making audio sound its very best is at the core of everything he does. Some of Alan's extensive credits include Sufjan Stevens, Converge, Animal Collective, The Dillinger Escape Plan, Brand New, Anais Mitchell, Frightened Rabbit, Grandmaster Flash. I'm going to say that again. Grandmaster Flash. <laughs> <laughs> Saves the Day and Mastodon, just to name a few. So a really a clearly a wide scope of music. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of how to prepare your mixes for mastering. So Alan's going to give us a lot of great advice on that so that you can end up with your best record ever. Alan has tons of experience in recording, mixing, and mastering. He's going to be sharing some great tips with us today. Uh, Rockstars, I want to thank Jesse Cannon, actually a, another guest on the show, for introducing me to Alan Douches. Um, so awesome to have you here. Please welcome Alan Douches to Recording Studio Rockstars. Alan, are you ready to rock? Yeah, let's rumble. No, love it, man. Let's rumble. <laughs> we're getting, we're going all like greaser versus jock now or something. That's great. Turn it up. All right, man. So tell us, how did you start out in recording? What was the beginning of this stuff? Well, you know, I, for the most part, like most of us, I suppose, you know, you're, you know, you're a musician in a band and, you know, you're the person that's doing all the technical stuff. And, and then you kind of get tired of lugging around all the gear. So you go, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy some recording gear. And, uh, so that's what I did. I traded in uh, a PA system and, and got an eight track half inch recorder and just started, uh, recording myself. And then, you know, people start hearing what you did and then they're like, Hey man, you know, would you record us? And you go, really? And I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know? And then, 
suddenly, you, you know, you have to quit your day gig to, to go and do that, which was pretty early. I was thinking about 19 years old when that happened. So, uh, and then, um, and where, where I, were you at that point? That was just, um, middle of New Jersey, Scotch Plains. Exactly. Uh, just like, you know, between, you know, my parents' basement and an apartment, you know, and then nice. one of the bands that I was working with went to a 24 track and they, they took me along, you know, Great. And from there. Yeah. From there, it was just kind of like they offered me a job as an assistant and, uh, you know, you start, you start climbing that ladder. So they, so the band themselves opened a studio or they just took you along to be their engineer in this new studio? Yeah, they You know, I had recorded the, their demo, their demos on the a track and then they had kind of put aside some money to, uh, from all their gigging to go to a, you know, a real 24 track studio. And, and they said, Hey, we want you to come along and produce. And I, you know, I was like, well, I don't know really how to do that in a real studio, but uh, I'll come along, you know? And so, you know, you go along and suddenly, you know, you feel that you're the liaison between the band and the engineer. So you kind of are producing, you know? So, um, and I just got the bug and, and the uh, studio manager was there and she uh, said, you know, we're looking for good assistance. If you're, if you're into just hanging out once in a while and learning what we do, uh, we'd love to have you aboard. And, you know, that's, that's, what, that's, that's the way it starts. I yeah. don't know if you know Roger Mutno, but uh, he's been on the show and he told a similar story about starting out sort of in the parents' garage in New Jersey and then moving yeah. on to the studio. So there you go. You, guys, you, you go. guys are a movement. There was a movement in Middlesex Corridor, we used to call it, you know, like a lot of the early emo stuff, uh, post-punk stuff uh, came out of there. And there was a there were a few few of us that were always involved in most of those. So it was a, it was a great time. Yeah. Right on. Well, so, um, I like to ask our guests to start out with an inspirational quote. Have you got anything you'd like to share with us about making music, get us excited about it? I guess, you know, my, my most repeated statement or quote is, um, pick a format and get to work. You know, I mean, I, I, I get that a lot from people. They're like, Oh, you know, you know, what's the best, uh, Mike pre what's the best converters, you know, or, Hey, have you heard about this thing? You know, and it's just like, it, you know, we all know it's about the music, you know, it's about yeah. the, the energy and the emotion of that. I mean, granted you want to use all the best gear possible, but too many people just get wrapped up into trying to find that perfect combination of gear. When we all know there is no perfect combination of gear, you know, it's, it's yeah. really about the magic that happens. Find the gear that, inspires you and hopefully inspires the performance from the musicians, but doesn't really matter. I, you know, and I've got lots of stories of, you know, tremendous records that were recorded on the absolute most basic of gear, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, so. you say we all know, and, and the truth is I think we know now, but I do think early on, I didn't necessarily know. I mean, to begin with, I didn't know anything. So I just thought like right. if I had a four track and it would record and play back, I was like, hell yeah, this rocks. You know? <laughs> and then yeah. later, once I went to school and started paying attention, well, then I thought maybe there's some stuff that's, you know, the right way to do it. And I, I started messing up everything I was doing until later on, I, I began to really understand that, you know, it was about the process and the performance and everything. Yeah, you right, kind of have to go through that full circle sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it makes you learn, you know, and you realize that, yeah, that's part of the process. Yeah. Well, so, um, again, I'm going to say this one more time. Grandmaster Flash, <laughs> rock and roll. I shouldn't say rock and roll. I should say something else. But I should probably say with a mega uh, delay on my voice, too. Tell us the story about that. Is there a cool story about working uh, with him? Yeah, you know, I guess early in my recording career, I did a lot of R&B stuff. I actually was... Uh, 
working out of Sugar Hill Studios in uh, Englewood, New Jersey as well as a staff engineer there. And, um, you know, you, you really learn how to uh, how to make records groove and, and what technology is about. The first time Flash came into the studio, I had no idea. And, uh, and kind of a lot of people didn't know how you made those early, you know, rap records, you know, and, and he needed a table, he needed a whole setup. But probably the most interesting story about that was I was also just prior to working with uh, with Flash, I had worked with Aerosmith on one of their um, wow. not so not so great records. I think it became part of uh, Done With Mirrors, maybe I think it was. And uh, and, you know, they were at the bottom of their career. They had just they had bottomed out. They were in rehab and just trying to climb back. As a matter of fact, uh, it wasn't even Joe Perry wasn't even in the band. It was uh, Rick Dufay and Jimmy Crespo, I think. Wow. Brad Whitford was in and out of the band at the time. And but um, I, we just doing, finished doing some recordings there with Jack Douglas and the tapes were around. And but nobody really cared that they were there. And and Flash had turned to me and said, uh, you know, you got to hook me up with those guys. And, and I'm like, with who? And he's like, Aerosmith. And I'm like, for what? <laughs> and, and he's just like, man, I cut to their grooves all the time. And, you know, that's probably the single stupidest move I ever made in the recording studio. It just. So you're you, basically what you're insinuating is that you could have out Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin by a few steps, by a few moments there. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I since after that, I had worked with Daryl, you know, DMC on a solo record of his. And I told him that story, you know, and, and he was just like, you know, they thought they, that they were, uh, you know, Rick Rubin was crazy, too. You know, um, uh, so I've made me feel better, at least. But yeah, the, <laughs> but, the, you know, the lesson there is, you know, always, you know, keep your mind open to everything and close to nothing. You know, you never you have to try stuff, you yeah. know, and that. And that was an early learning experience. I was probably 20 years old at the time or something. Wow. Um, you know, wow. learn, learned early. And then, you know, like, yeah, six months later, eight months later, you know, watching MTV, you know, you know, and, and out they pop out of that, you know, big drum or whatever it was. And the, the wall was coming <laughs> yeah. down. And it was just like, you know, literally it was just like, wow, what a lesson. Like, you know, it you, you just got to you have to be open to trying things, you know. Well, what's and fascinating, I, too, is. Let's look at those two artists. Um, at the time you were in the studio, Aerosmith been through the studio. They're already they've already like had a whole career in the studio, and the way to record their music perfectly matches what you would anticipate from a studio. And at right. that time, what you described with Grandmaster Flash is he's showing up, and it's almost like you're recording this exotic world music, and you're like, well, how do we mic this instrument? You know. But like, yeah. it, like it was a field recording exercise to try and figure out how to interface the studio with hip hop at that time, because you just nobody knew it was brand new. Right. It was. It, it was it was so new that, like, you know, I actually sat him down and I just said, listen, I said, you know, we're going to be together for like two months here in the studio. Give me the background on this. You know, uh, just teach me because I, I, I just don't really understand this. And he did. And he, you know, told, told me about the, you know, the beginnings of, of how he would, you know, cut records and find records. And he was really the first person to like scratch records. And, you know, and, uh, you know, he would always, you know, mark all the labels off of his records so nobody knew what the records were, you know. Know, uh, wow, yeah, right. Pretty, yeah, you know, like, don't, don't tell anybody what that snare trigger says, that drum is. You know, it's like, no, he was the same way. He wouldn't let people know what his records were, you know, but that's how he made his living. Yeah, yeah fascinating. Can we mention the name of the album? And I'll include a, a link to it in the show notes. Uh, 
I, yeah, I think it was called Back to the Old School. Back to the Old School. Uh, okay, great. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. It was, Rockstars, uh, the one. we'll include like some simple, maybe a YouTube clip right in the show notes that you can just click right through and check it out. Well, again, it's like my f- sort of closing thought takeaway on that is you really were taking something that, you know, you're looking back on this and you're saying, oh man, why did I not see this connection? But the opportunity to take something that was very much a part of the studio and think outside the box to connect it to something that was very brand new to the studio. So, right. you know, there's got, there's bound to be an analogy for all of us in our worlds if we just think about it like that. Well, it did. It definitely kind of formulated where I went because, you know, working with major label artists like that, I also at the same time was working with indie artists and, you know, I kind of made a, a decision. I'm like, well, you know what? You know, I really blew it with Flash. I mean, not that not that I could have done what, you know, Rick Rubin had done. They, they had the whole thing laid out. But, um, you know, I really just decided that, you know, indie music was the place to, to get in on the, on the stuff, you know, get in early with bands. And as it turned out, I just had a lot more fun working with indie artists than on major label albums. You know, there were quite, quite a few of them at the time. Like I had hooked up with a couple of producers, Jack Douglas and uh, Russ Heidelman, some other, you know, you know, huge producers that, you know, were bringing in these, these projects. We had a great studio. I had a Neve console and an old Neve 8038 and, and a big old wooden room to track in. So, so it was a great place to learn and they were bringing in these awesome artists, but a lot of them, you know, weren't doing exciting new things. Mm. Uh, you know, then you'd have, you know, some of David Bowie's band would come in and just be jamming, you know, and, and you go, this is new. What is this? You know, and they're, oh, yeah, it's a band we're putting together. It's kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, this is exciting, you know, so fun stuff. Well, I totally empathize with that. So I remember feeling the same thing. I started out interning in a studio that was bringing in some very successful artists and I learned a ton from them, but it just didn't resonate with me musically until I started hearing an indie record that was being mixed there. And in fact, it was being mixed by Roger Mutno, also from New Jersey. It was right. Jill Sobiel's record. And then that, then uh, I, I found the guys who had that studio and I was like, oh, that's I can relate to this. It's new and it's different and it feels like my kind of music, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I even got invited to I won't won't mention names, but to interview, to be an engineer of a very famous guitar player. And I just kind of, my gut was telling me, like, I just wanted to do something that somebody hadn't done yet, you know, something different and new. So I think that's a a thing that we all feel. So I'm really glad that we get to talk about indie records. Let's talk about Sufjan Stevens, about that record, because I think the one that you did is the same one that I first heard about, which was his record of all 50 states, which is such a cool concept. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was, I had done the first state, which was Michigan, which was a great record. And then he embarked into Illinois and as he was recording it, you know, he kind of, he called me and was just like, you know, this one's a lot more ambitious than the other one. I'd, I'd really like to bounce some ideas off of you. And, um, I, I have a couple of mixes, but I want to bounce my multi-track, which was all a Digi one actually it was recorded. The basic tracks were in a Roland standalone 16 bit, uh, 16 track recorder. But, um, then he, he imported it all into a pro tools Digi one and he wanted to get more warmth. He was feeling like he was missing the warmth. And so he wanted to bounce the multi-track to a two inch machine that I had. And, and I, I kind of said, well, you know what, before we do that, why don't we just try and hit tape during mastering, you know? And he was like, all right, let's try that. So we did an experiment. We did five songs first 
came in and we, we hit tape and, and he was just, yeah, that's it. He said, okay, good. I can go back and finish mixing now, knowing that the mixes will, will sound great, you know, post tape on the, from the mastering session. And nice. That's, that's yeah. pretty thorough of him as an artist to like go right to the end, you know, check that the completed thing's going to work and then go back to the work table, you know, and, and keep cranking out songs. Well, the, the irony about it though, was that most of the record isn't didn't hit tape in the end result. We found, although it was doing what he wanted, when the final mixes, when we put the final album together, we kind of felt that the tape, although it was doing that glue thing and giving it some more harmonic thickness, that the arrangements in, within his uh, that album were, were pretty dense anyway. And we found that the clarity without the tape was actually what he wanted, or was more desirable. Hmm. So although we had went through that first step of hitting tape, Eventually, the, the final record, I think there's only two songs. There's a bunch of songs on there. I think 18, 19 tracks or something like that. I think only two of them um, wound up hitting tape. So, Well, you know, it's interesting. When you were actually bouncing it off tape, you had to invest a whole lot more into trying out that sound than you do now if you used a digital plug-in tape emulator, for example. Right, um, right. And so you might have been much more reticent about going with the non-tape version after you had just put in all that effort of trying it out on tape. But now I try to, if I'm using a tape emulator plug-in at any stage, I try to just turn it on, turn it off, and just judge it with my ear and go with whichever one hits me, you know? And, yeah, uh, yeah. And I, because you never know. Sometimes the tape version is the one that you like, and sometimes it's better before you mess with it on tape. Yeah, a lot of people ask me to, you know, to take their mixes to tape, you know, and, you know, if I do, I, I don't necessarily tell them that I'm doing it right away. I, I always kind of give full disclosure at a later point. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if they know that a, a version, maybe a revision or something is is hitting tape, they're just automatically going to want to like it. You know, when in fact, maybe it's doing, you know, maybe it's doing what it did with Sufjan's record, which was just making it too thick. And the arrangements, the details were getting lost in there. Mm. You know, that sounds awesome on a, on, a, on a rock record or something where there's, you know, space for a drum sound to develop or something, but doesn't really wasn't really working in that context. Well, so that. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question, which is to share an important failure story from from your experience or from the studio. Maybe that's kind of a version of it is where tape doesn't always work. But have you got anything that you'd like to share as a story about kind of a, a failure turned learning experience for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I you know, I think you go through a lot of them, you know, I mean, even the Grandmaster Flash thing is a failure, you know, in a sense. I think the, the whole volume wars thing was a, a big learning lesson for for a lot of us too you know early early on it was exciting to make you know records really loud but you know in hindsight there there's a way to make it loud you know and, well, and we push early we, on we push. there was still 20 db of headroom to work with right <laughs> yeah it is funny you go back and we're reissuing some records now from uh, joan of arc and uh cap and jazz and some early emo stuff and and you go back and you you think of those records and you think yeah they were pretty loud at the time but the, oh my gosh yeah they're like you know, six dB lower now, you know, than, yeah. you know, than where we're shooting for things now. I think you have to learn from your mistakes. That's, that's all part of it. You know, you have to, you have to be willing to accept that there are going to be mistakes and then you have to choose whether or not, you know, they're going to be part of your arsenal, you know, putting well, them out. Mike. Isn't there also, you know, I, I don't know if it gets talked about in the loudness war description we talk about things just wanting to be louder and louder, but also the devices on which we actually listen to music were changing through that time too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
you know, different things maybe demanded a different kind of input signal from whatever your source was to sound its best. And then things got louder. And then the next device tried to accommodate that as its reference, maybe, <laughs> you know, and then so you're now trying to master and mix for that next device. Yeah. But maybe yeah. we get to talk about that here in a second. But it's just fascinating to me the way that whole progression went from early CDs, maybe really kind of sounding crappy to, yeah. you know, things being 20 decibels louder. Yeah, it's really remarkable because, you know, there are some, you know, CDs can sound awesome, you know, in, in terms of thinking of 16 bits and a 44.1 kilohertz sampling rate. You know, you can store wonderful information there. Um, it's really more about how do you get it there that is the determining factor. Interesting. All right. Well, so um, what, what about um, an aha moment of success for you? Something where you kind of things clicked in the studio and you sort of saw the light. Um, I think one of them was when I left the Neve console and I went to a MCI 636, which is notoriously terrible sounding. You was know, that the um, Sony with automation yeah, this, and the, all that? The, the, it was pre-Sony. It was the, the, uh, the first kind of like inline automated console. But the, but the thing about it, that was the aha part about it was automation. On the uh, the Neve eighty thirty eight, we had we had originally had NECAM one, which was the early Neve moving fader automation, and it was just atrocious. You know, they, we tore the faders out of the console. Just you had to put all the analog faders back in. I mean, the moving faders were analog, but the software was so cumbersome that you you know you weren't mixing. You were you were trying to debug this you know yeah. software from nineteen eighty two or three or whenever it was. So when I got to the six thirty six, it was just like. Oh, this is awesome. You know, and just and you think back how primitive that just fader and mute automation was and but yet how insightful it was to making records sound great. And I think so many, you know, it's it's really interesting. We'll during mastering, sometimes, you know, people will bring in their entire hard drives and they'll have the entire session there and they'll say, oh, no, just open up the whole session. You know, if you want to change something, you know, go and change it, you know. And so you open it up and you, you know, you, you and and you look at it and there's no faders moving. You know, there's there, you know, they've got like, you know, a, a multiband compressor and a limiter on every channel and the faders don't move. But, but they've got this perfect balance set up. Um, and I, I think the aha moment is, is faders are supposed to move. Um, you know, there was an assistant I once had, I was, we were working on something and I tried to explain to him like, well, just, you know, ride that in there. Just try it, have some fun. Don't just leave it there. You know, it's, you know, it, yeah. it, that's what it's about is making things dynamic, making them move. Even in the mass in mastering, I'll, I change things on the fly. Sure. Yeah. Let's just, you know, yeah. Okay. I'm going to do it at 2k there and it's going to switch up to 3.3 there. Okay. You know, let's see if we can make that happen. There's one of the EQs, you know, that has a very sweep variable on it. Okay. Let's go for it. Let's try it. Sure. Yeah. You know. So, well, let's talk about when and how that process of moving faders comes into the equation, because it can be, I think when you're mixing in on consoles and stuff, you just naturally start grabbing faders and moving them with your hands and stuff, especially if it's live. You know, if it's a live mix, it's right. your only option. As right. soon as it's no longer live, then all of a sudden we start removing ourselves from doing anything somehow. We're like afraid to, maybe I shouldn't change it. Maybe I should change it, you know? What, right. what do you think the, the way to approach that is in this digital world? I mean, again, most of us have a mouse. We're like trying to click with a mouse and move one thing at a time. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the tactile, you know, work surfaces are, are going to start coming out more and more now. I think TC has a white paper about it, too, that like when you're following your mouse across a screen, that's a rapid eye movement. And if small muscular motions with your right hand interrupts the flow of neurons to your ears or something. So oh, like they have to, so, yeah, they have a huge paper about it. That's why they on this TC6000, they made that that moving fader box was really more so that it didn't tear into that concept. You know, it was like, no, you can move these faders like normal faders and you don't have to watch a mouse tracking across a screen. You know, it did the number, the numbers just move when the faders move, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I think that's true. I, you know, it's, it, when I first got the TC 6,000, I didn't get it with the fader pack. Uh, although the demo they loaned me did have it and, and I just didn't like it as much. You know, uh, I found myself, not going to it like nah, it's a digital box, you know, but then once they gave me that tactile interface, it was like, oh, this this unit actually sounds pretty good. You know, software hadn't changed. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the converter, the you know, the interfaces hadn't changed. The only thing that had changed was your way that you were entering the information and you weren't thinking about a mouse or touching a screen or something like that. Yeah. It was just a, a much more user friendly interface. And that's well, let's, that's key. Let's let's throw some analogies at it. So as a musician, what you do play an instrument, Alan? Yeah, mostly guitar. Yeah. Okay. So guitar, when you learn the guitar at first, you, you, you look at the fretboard and you're trying to look at where your fingers go right. and stuff like right. that. And with practice and as, as people get better and better, you look less and less until eventually you notice a great musician doesn't look at their instrument. They might be playing with their eyes closed and just like right. really feeling it and emoting it. And uh, it makes sense. You know, tactile is like, why do we have nerves in our hands and fingers and body to, to <laughs> right. tell our brain what's going on so that we know what's going on without having to look at it? So it makes sense that this whole process of having to look at the screen while we're doing stuff that's tactile would be an interruption. It's like it, it's not what yeah. you're designed to do. So I like I think, I think that's cool to hear about that. Yeah. And early on, you know, when when Pro Tools and Cubase and all these early programs were coming out, you know, it was pretty common for people to turn the monitors off in the control room when you were just listening, you know, like turn that thing off, you know, let's just listen, you know, but now there's so much information that you can adjust and you can look at and you can, you know, you know, graphs and, you know, meters and things that I don't, I don't think people are turning the monitors off anymore, but maybe they should, you know, go back to that old school way of thinking. Yeah. You know? Well, so let's see, there was a Massey had a plug in Stephen Massey, I, I don't know if it's existing now, but it used to be one where you could put it on, I think, the master bus, and it would just turn the screen black when you were in play. Oh, if you wanted. That's awesome. This is a hip idea. And then yeah. we sort of thought through one here at the studio. So what we did is we realized that you could take, you know, like a black image or something like that, or just take your studio logo and blow that up on your screen in full screen mode. And then on a Mac anyway, I think you can kind of... Apple tab your way to flip from your right. DAW to that. So you could be sure. on playback. You could kind of just flip to a full screen image while you listen. So that's right. sort of maybe a quick key hack to, to doing that. Yeah. I, I think we've gotten way too dependent on looking rather than listening, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I have a the second screen hooked up now. <laughs> so oh, now man. I've got like two screens hooked up. <laughs> right. And then that creates this whole new baffle problem for yeah. you in between your speakers. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, so great intro to the show here. Let's jump into our topic of the show, Alan. Um, sure. How to prepare your mixes for mastering. Yeah. What would, you, yeah. what would you like to say about that? Or how would you like to introduce this topic? 
Well, you know, I mean, uh, it's a little bit of a what are you pretending not to know topic, you know, um, you know, do you think your mixes should be over compressed or should they be dynamic? You know, a question I always get is, you know, how much two bus processing is too much? Right. right. You know, how much, you know, should I pull my compressor off? You know, I, I use a little bit of ozone. I use a little bit of this. You know, what should I do? You know, the clinical answer is, you know, do one with it and do one without it. You know, but chances are, you know, whatever you had on that, whatever you're using on that two bus that's creating, you know, the emotion for you to mix and, and do the blending is pretty critical to what you're doing. But mm-hmm. the, the problem is that you're now committing to that and there's no turning back. And maybe your monitoring environment is improper. Maybe maybe you want to go to vinyl. You know, if you're going to print a vinyl, I can't cut to vinyl if it's squashed. It's just not going to come back sounding great. You, you've got to leave headroom. Yeah. You know, you've got to let it be dynamic. So, you know, you, you always want to temper that stuff uh, and think about it. You know, it's like, well, what do you think? Of course, try to take your limiters off. You know, keep it as high, high as re- resolution as you can. I'm still amazed at some people are, that are recording at 44.1, you know, and that they're, you know, not going up to 88 or 96. Higher than that might be overkill, but, you know, try it. Do a test. You know, try some things at higher sample rates. Right, See well, if you hear the difference. Let me throw some questions at you. So, for example, a common rate for us to record here is just 2448. It's something okay. I adopted a long time ago, and I've just kind of stuck to it. What's your take on the difference between 44.1 and 48? Do you feel like it's, it's no, there? You notice it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a better bet to be at 48 because it's a video standard. So anybody recording at 44 is kind of placating themselves into the CD world, which is dead. Mm-hmm. So why not go to 48 at least? You know, can, can we hear the difference? Well, we can measure it. So we must be able, some people must be able to hear it. So yeah, sure. 48 is better. What about the idea, again, like I'm going to ask a totally geeky question, which is probably just dumb to even ask it if it's technical. But if you go to 48, it moves that Nyquist filter up a little bit higher, right? Which gets it out of the way a little more. Absolutely. If you have material that's there, you know, it's surprising in, well, you know, if you're using good mic pre's, you know, good microphones and you have that air there, that's all, that's awesome. Most of the time it's, it's gets getting squashed in the processing. So you don't really have too much of it. Yeah. I'm um, only recording with cardboard tubes, so I don't think I have anything <laughs> above 450 Hertz. You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, so, I mean, 48 makes sense. I would say without a doubt, 48 should be the minimum. Don't, you know, don't go to 44. Okay, cool. Just, uh, now, 96, you you are hearing a difference or you're hearing sessions absolutely. come in at 96 and they have a, a clarity? Yeah, you know, you know, is it the producer or the engineer that's making the difference or is it the sample rate? You know, I, I just think that there's a correlation there that, you know, the better producers, you know, the better mixers are working at higher sample rates, you know. Okay. What are some of the complaints that people have about working at 96? What are the challenges we're going to run into, you think? It's, you know, it's CPU power. You know, a lot of guys, you know, don't have uh, or they'll have multiple systems. I, I know a particular producer, you know, that he does a lot of work at home. You know, he, he's got, you know, a full rig at, at the studio, but he likes to do some editing and stuff at, at home. But that system at home can't handle 96K. So he made a switch once he started working at home. He's like, you know, I'm going to just go down to 48. You know, it's it's probably fine. He lists, you know, doing a project. That sounds fine. You know, I, you yeah. know, I again, are, we're limiting ourselves for the future here too. You know, as as higher bandwidth starts to matter, as you know, we start looking at where music is going. You know, all your original content's going to be at forty eight. 
you know, now, a 44. Now, what about Sufjan's records, which I think are famously recorded at Who Cares Resolution? And I, I mean that respectfully. Will they continue to sound great as we move forward? And what, how does that work? Well, that's the key. You know, it's, it's not the sample rate. It's how you how you use it. You know, he he wasn't clobbering the levels. As a matter of fact, almost, you know, all the tracks, you know, were probably below. I'm saying the individual tracks because, we, you know, we were we were testing to go to going to two inch tape. The individual levels were like peaked at minus six, minus five in that range. You know, so he wasn't trying to squeeze the digital domain. You know, when even at, at 16 bits, you have 96 dB of dynamic range. You're still, you know, 15 to 20 dB above any amazing analog machine. Mm-hmm. So you've got the dynamic range there. Why are we squeezing it? We, we were we were taught that, you know, from the original DAT machines that we were using that, you know, oh no, get in there as hot as you can, but don't clip it, you know, gosh right, darn, right. you know. <laughs> so I think we I think we were sold a fallacy there that like, well, yeah, for two track, you want to put it in as hot as you can. So you do get the dynamic range, the better signal to noise, you know, but from a multi-track world, especially if you're mixing in the box, I, you know, leave headroom. You got to have headroom, you know. Well, so let's jump to um, this next question, which was how do we create the ideal dynamics in a mix? So here we are. We've got whatever sample rate we're doing. We're mixing. We're trying to make stuff sound the best this record's going to sound. You know, we've we've liked it all along while we're tracking, but we're always just instinctively trying to make it one one better, you know? Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, yeah. One louder. And we're pushing it. And then we're going... Well, maybe it can be louder, you know? So what are some tips you have for people to trust their gut, but at the same time, not back their record into a digital corner somehow? Well, this is, you know, I don't know that this isn't going to come across right until you realize what I'm saying, maybe that I think turning up the monitor volume in the control room. I think, you know, a lot of people are using, you know, smaller, you know, bookshelf kind of speakers and, you know, so, and they're playing it, you know, at moderate volumes and, Compression like that, you know, kind of sounds good. But when you turn it up, it should really, you know, it should have fantastic dynamic range. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where you start to lose it. You start to lose that punch of the kick. When it's playing quietly, you don't mind. You're just kind of listening for, you know, the balances of everything. But when you turn it up, it should feel like live music, you know. Yeah. So, so maybe, and probably the fact that a lot of people don't have large monitors in their control rooms is, uh, is part of that. You know, so you're trying to get the excitement through the compression or the limiting or something rather than just letting there be air and letting, you know, the kick and the snare punch and snap through. Okay. Um, So I like that. So a couple of thoughts. One is when you're mixing rock stars, you definitely want to work all day at low volumes just so that you actually can, (laughs) your ears can work all day, you know, if you're going to spend some time on your mix. Two is that, you know, you hear about this from folks like Chris Lord Algae, for example, or other people, you know, making the comment, well, you know, at loud volumes, everything sounds good. So it's more challenging to make things sound exciting at low volumes. So, but I think that that refers to manipulating the individual tracks before we get into this stereo bus treatment at that point. You know, maybe don't even have your bus compression on yet, you know, no limiting, yeah. no bus compression and and try and make your mix sound exciting at low volume. So it's like you're treating the individual elements. But then when you get towards the end and you're like, all right, now we're sort of dealing with the stereo bus 
and making sure that we've we've excited the whole, this whole thing together, then Alan, I think what you're saying at, at that point, that's when you have to allow yourself to crank the speakers and turn it up. Yeah. So you make sure yeah. that it's still got the energy coming through. Cause yeah. if you squash it too much, it's going to end up just kind of a pancake, you yeah. know, it like just, or searing your head off or something and, yeah. and being harsh. Yeah, it, Exactly. Those low frequencies should punch through you and, you know, and envelop the room with tone. That's why I said it, it kind of sounds a little wrong at, at first, you know, but, you know, you music is meant to be enjoyed at loud volumes, too. You know, and so, you know, does it sound great at loud? Does it sound great quiet? You're absolutely, and that's the balance. You want it to, to be both, you know, and when I'm working, I have two main volumes, you know, in, in my control room, you know, and, and there's really nothing in between. It's it's a loud volume. And a moderate volume. I think you said you know, loud and mo loud. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, we can go back to Grandmaster Flash on that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you, you, you got to check it at those louder volumes because you you want it to feel great when it's pumping. You know. Yeah. Well, so and another thought, rock stars, is, is if you're mixing and you're trying to make your mixes great, but you're sending it to a mastering engineer, a professional like Alan, then you know he he's going to be better at getting it from this loud to the loudest it could be, you know, and, and appropriately. So, yeah, so if you, if you are careful not to overcook it on your end, then you're at least leaving much, you're leaving you out in the room to bring it up to the best it's going to be without screwing yeah, it up. It does feel like, you know, the mastering engineers get to have all the fun, you know, but the reality is that it's a multi-formatted future, you know, and there are places like, you know, Apple's, you know, mastered for iTunes format, a bit of the YouTube compression and vinyl that, you know, you just don't want it squashed. It just, it's not going to sound as great that way, you know, when you're, when it's being played back to back on something. And, And also I think, you know, the success of some records is often that which has dynamics. I know that there were studies done for uh, TV stations. I think Turner uh, Broadcasting Network did a pretty famous study where they they recognized that if they kept their volume of their broadcasts within a consistent dynamic range, and considering the commercials and everything as well, that people stayed listening to that or stayed tuned to the station longer rather than one program being louder, you know, one being just quieter. But if there was dynamic in there, people felt it was natural and they, they actually left the channel on. And I think that's very true of music, that when music has dynamics, people listen longer. I think so. I think when something sounds way too excited and too loud, it might catch my attention for a moment, but I'm usually totally. like, I, I can't last very long. And then oh, yeah. it's short attention span theater after that, you know? Well, that's radio, that's pop radio. And that's, you know, when people ask us to master, or, you know, a single for radio in the older days, yeah, that's what you wanted. You wanted to take some extra low end out, you know, don't, don't make it too wide. You want it as soon as it comes, pops on, you want to grab somebody's attention, but that's what pop radio was about, but that's kind of a different era. Now you want people, it's about catalog. It's about, you know, sustainability. You know, how long are people going to be listening to your music on Spotify? Hopefully long enough that you actually get a residual payment someday. So it's got to sound good. And, and the key to that is dynamics. So now do you have any advice for our rock stars who are mixing and, and they want it to sound good on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud? Well, for first off, don't clip it. You know, that's just that's just going to make a mess of it. And, you know, yeah, they, you know, there's there's companions that they're using in their software algorithms that are going to bring it up to an average volume, you know. So there's no reason to have to limit it to death 
to, to try to compete with some of those other records. There's, you know, there's a bulk and there's an RMS value that you can shoot for to try to make your mix dense. And so then sound loud, but it's not about the top end clipping. It's not about that last, you know, two or three dB of dynamic. It's about that stuff that resides, you know, from minus 12 to minus 20 dB of peak level. That's where you want that to be dense, you know, Back and let that other <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, you know, and that's slower attack times, you know, you, you know, if not, no compression, you know, letting things be transient. That's what you want. You sound like a personal trainer. It's, it's about core strength. You need <laughs> core strength. It's, you know, I mean, back in the, you know, the older days, my God, um, you know, in a, in a 24 track analog studio, maybe you were lucky to have eight compressors you know, in the studio. And so when you're mixing down a 24 track, you had to kind of, well, I'm going to have a stereo bus compression. Maybe I'll do one parallel. Now you've got four compressors. Where are you going to put them? Well, lead vocal, lead guitar, and a snare drum, you know, and then you have to start riding those faders. And why is it that we always go back to saying how great those records sound? Because they weren't squashed. You yeah. know, they hit tape. They had that, you know, they had some thickness in that, you know, bulk area, but they weren't limited. They, they weren't multiband compressed, you know? Yeah. Well, it's sort of like new films and old films. I mean, you know, you watch a, a new movie and huge screen with uh, ultra sharp and wide array of colors and special effects and everything. Uh, yet, if you go back and watch a really beautiful old black and white film, there's a suspension of disbelief for a moment while you accept that it doesn't <laughs> right. sound like this new flashy thing. But once right. you get pulled in, you, you really, it can move you and the story comes through and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's similar with old records, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's something I really love about these new streaming formats is that you can have access to so much material and you go back and you just kind of let yourself live in a certain genre and sound and, and it's kind of a wonderful experience. And if it's not too harsh and too loud, you can stay there longer. It, it, you know, I, I know that for a fact. I can see it with the records that have, you know, stood up over time that I've worked on. They're dynamic, you know, and they, they may be extremely loud as well, but they have dynamics within their arrangements. You know, it's just it's just not all compressed and, and you know, multibanded. All right. Well, so let's talk about bit depth. 16, 24, 32. Those are my options in my DAW. What should I use? Well, I guess, you know, 32 float is just, it's fantastic. You know, you've got all, especially if you're not going to be squeezing the level, you know, you've got so much headroom that you're not going to clip the internal mixing bus. That's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. At least 24, no one should be recording at 16 bits. That just doesn't make any sense anymore. Okay. I mean, you know, sp saving space on your hard drive at this, these days, you know, <laughs> it made sense years ago because yeah, you had to, you know, be able to record enough tracks. 24 sounds great. You know, the, the, you know, the, when you think about what we get with a 2496 file that we may send to, uh, you know, vinyl cut or to, you know, M, to get M fits manufactured from or something, there's a, there's plenty of dynamics. Again, pick a format and get to work. I don't think you should be so concerned about 24 or 32, 32 being better. But if, you know, if, if, if it's a problem for your CPU to be handling that, task, then 24 is fine. So 32 is better than 24, but 24 is still fantastic. That's sort of the, the idea. Yeah. You know, I think that even some of the software manufacturers may, you know, design more towards one or the other because the 32 is really more about dynamic rather than authenticity. You know, there's more calculation going on, mm -hmm. you know, within a 32-bit system. But um, again, so far, 
both of them so much better. I mean, 24 bits gives you 144 dB of dynamic range. Nobody can capture that. No converters on this planet really can capture that kind of dynamic range. Yeah. So, you know, take advantage of it. Take, take advantage of, of what you can. So is Go it about that? Is it about the, the capturing part of where you get the value in the bit depth? Or does the bit depth yeah. also affect how your DAW is able to run it through plugins what? and mix it all together and all that? Yeah. The 32 sounds better with mega processing, you know. Um, I think 24 would probably sound better with just if, you, if you're just trying to capture something and then maybe play it back through an analog source for analog summing or something like that. I would probably say, you know, less mechanics involved. Yeah. Fascinating. So if we are going to do a mix and we're really going to layer busing and, and, and plugins and side chains and parallels and all that kind of stuff, we might appreciate what 32-bit depth does for our mix. Right. And, you know, it's, it's cliche to say it, but try, try something both ways. See if you can hear the difference. See if you feel the difference. It's hard to get the similar source, you know, because you can't just record a band once, you know, 24-bit, right. and then, then say, okay, guys, do it again at 32. Obviously, their performance is going gonna, is gonna to make a difference, you yeah. know. But, uh, you know, ha try, try it with an acoustic guitar with somebody. Just, you know, and, and, and then try processing. And that's the other thing about the 96 versus, you know, 48 thing. It's like, you know, for the most part, 48, again, can sound really good, but it's as you start processing and you start laying on the DSP, does the 48 hold up to what the 96 does? Interesting, you know, it, interesting. I would have thought, I was thinking of how, you know, does your computer hold up at 96 or does it choke after two plugins and tell you to upgrade to a, you know, just break out your credit card for 5,000 bucks or whatever? Well, again, you know, pick pick a format and get to work. Sufjan's record is, you know, was sixteen bit forty four one, you know, and 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 twenty four tracks, mind you, yeah. you know, and it sold right, and half fifty states though, right? And the, well, actually, that was only the second state. He had to, <laughs> the, the success of that record made him really go back. He was just like, "I'm going to do this forty eight more times." Um, he probably will at some point. He's pretty That's prolific. Great. That's great. Yeah. 24, 48, 50. That was his format. No, 16, 44, 150. Um, all right. Well, so now here we are. We've just done our 32-bit mix. What do we deliver to you, the mastering engineer? What do you want from me? We, you know, don't change the sample rate. Don't change the bit depth. Keep it exactly as it is. And try to not overdo your two bus processing, you know, and as always, I know every mastering engineer will say, you listen, you know, if you're, if you're questioning how much you got there, send it over, let's hear it. Let, let me just, that's kind of what I do in the morning is, you know, I'll have a cup of coffee and I'm, you know, getting the tubes are all warming up and stuff and I'm checking some emails and stuff and I'm listening to mixes that people are, are, are working on. And, you know, I'll shoot them back a quick. Listen, I heard that, you know, that sounds a little squashed, especially on the low end, you know, maybe back that down a little, you know, so, nice. Well, that was yeah. going to be my next question. So we'll get to that in one sec. But uh, am I sending you a stereo interleaved file or split mono? Um, I like stereo interleaved right now just because there's less to go wrong. Right. There's less yeah. things to get lost yeah. in the shuffle. Yeah. It's, you know, I've just seen too many mistakes with um, interleaved files, you know, uh, I mean, with the dual mono files. Yeah. You know, um, are, are they actually, do they match a stereo or are they two mono files? I've just seen the craziest of times, different lengths on them, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Okay. So, Rockstars, when you're mixing, select stereo interleaved. Bounce it at the same format that your resolution of your session is. So if you're at 2448, bounce it at 2448. If you're at 3296, big breath bounce it at 3296. 
Um, and then and if you want to bounce yourself an MP3 for listening back, I still do that. I still sure. I I, yeah. I I don't know whether I'm a loser, but I, in my Dropbox, I'm driving in the car and I want to listen to the the mix we just did. I select the MP3 one to play back, you know, over over the internet and over Bluetooth to my car stereo. I just feel like that represents where I'm headed somehow. It's it's the real world. I mean that we we do the same thing. We'll we, you know we'll deliver full waves for everybody, but we'll also deliver even during the process of mastering. We'll send people MP3s because it is at the moment you know the way that the world is hearing them. We try we, you know we try to tell them please check the wave as well because you know we want it to sound great in the future. But uh, yeah, MP3s have to and they can you know as long as you use you know we do three twenty kilobit MP3s and they sound pretty good. Yeah, you know. Yeah. All right, cool. So now we're going to go to what you were just talking about, which is how do you communicate with your mastering engineer? How important is that? What process should our listeners hope for in their experience sending their records, their mixes to their mastering person? Uh, you know, it's, it's, again, it's been said quite a few times, communication, you know, feel free to email and talk. I like getting on the phone, you know, discuss what you're going for, you know, um, you know, let us know, you know, what, if, what experiences you've had, if you've got, you know, a limiter on your bus, let's hear it. Let's, let's hear what you're getting used to. You know, the more communication, the better it is. I mean, the, the, it's such a competitive marketplace. You know, if you're choosing to, to get somebody else involved at the final step, let them know what your feelings have been all along the way. What are you shooting for? What are your ideals? I often ask the question, you know, what records inspire you rather than, you know, saying what rec, what do you want your record to sound like? Well, that would be kind of stupid because it's, you know, you want it to be original and, and awesome on its own, but what records inspire you? And then when people say things, you know, that are, you know, incredibly dynamic, you go, okay, I get the idea where this is going, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, you just have to, you know, you have to communicate, I, you know, just sending it off is like sending it to that lander plugin or something, you know, it's right. like, what are you going to, what are you going to expect back from that? You know, and, and people do that all the time. They'll, they'll come to a mastering session. You know, you should try to go to a mastering session if you can, you know, they'll come to the mastering session. They'll say, you know, just do, just do your thing. We want you to do your thing. And I'm like, well, what I do is work with people. So let's talk about it. What are you looking for? You know, what, what, what inspires you? What makes you go? Yeah. I want to hear this again. You know, yeah. that's what we want to get out of your music. And I think like that Sufjan story, I mean, we did two sessions prior to even starting the mastering session. There was another where we discussed how he was monitoring and whether or not a bounce to dysfunction was actually interfering with his listening. He felt that when he was listening on headphones during live, it had one sound. Then when he was bouncing it to disc and making a CD and then listening back in the same control room, it was sounding different. And it was just like, yeah, because you're listening through a headphone j amplifying jack or listening to your CD jack. You know, yeah. it's, there's there's lots of variables in there. Well, so here's something that is fascinating to me. If you get something back from mastering uh, a finished master, one of the places that it lives these days is you're watching a YouTube clip of something and it's playing over your iPhone speaker. What should we expect from our iPhone speaker as far as the sound of a finished master? Should we expect that you should be able to turn the volume all the way up on this and it sounds clean? Should we expect it to distort? Should we expect it? <laughs> yeah. I know we're not going to expect any low end, but what's, what's reasonable to hope for? Uh, I, I mean, I think you should be able to turn it up to your, you know, two thirds point, maybe a little more before, you know, you start saying, you know, that's just pushing the, the, the limit of what that little speaker is going to be able to do, okay. you know, uh, and always com and compare it to the other things that you, you know, your 
feeling your genre is part of. You know, if you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm going against these louder bands, then obviously that's what you're going to have to compare it to. You know, and, the you know, the little amp and everything in the in the iPhone or your, you know, Galaxy or whatever, uh, it's it's just going to start to buckle at some point. It's just not going to handle that. The speaker, now, the, the, the box. Does it mean that some ma- some records are maybe being mastered to sound loud out of an iPhone speaker? But they they sort of destroy the record a little bit in order to make that happen. Is there does low well, we'll, end get removed, for example? We'll do versions for separate, you know, playback devices. We will do, you know, obviously vinyl. It's like if I try to cut this in vinyl as this pancake, it's just it's just not going to sound good. It's just going to get scratchier the deeper you try to cut that. Yeah. But if you leave the dynamic, it's gonna it's gonna become that lively motion that a lacquer becomes, or that the, ultimately the the vinyl pressing becomes. Same thing with the iPhone speaker. You know, if it's going to be over squashed, it's you're you're just gonna you're gonna get a lot of hash. That amp is just gonna start frying in there. I think more dynamics are gonna sound better all across the board, unless you're getting into that competitive market. Mm-hmm. In which case, again, there's that body that you want to shoot for. You don't want to shoot for that top, you know, two or three dB being the loudest. You want that that stuff that resides underneath it to be thick and and full sounding. Now, what about if you're doing something with a little more dynamic, typically like a jazz album? Do you feel like if you turned your iPhone speaker all the way up, you might still hear some crunching, a little bit of fuzzy distortion clipping. Yeah, in I, you know, the, the, the guys that I work with that have that, they have, you know, they have DACs hooked up, you know, digital to audio converters hooked up to their phones or their iPads. And they, you know, they've got this whole setup. So they're not even bothering with that. So, you know, I don't, I don't even concern myself with that with them, you know, okay, when, right, when, cool. we're, when we're talking about it. Cool. So, well, oddball question, but it's a yeah, no, it, real again, world it's the, at the same time. It is the real world. I can't tell you probably, you know, three out of five people as they're checking their, their masters, their first check is on a device like that because that's the first thing they want to hear. They're going to download it onto their phone. They're going to play yeah, it on their or phone. Or it got delivered that way and, and all they had to do was click a link in an email and it right. starts playing off the phone speaker and then they go, right. you know, and we're used to hearing some things that way and we want to, we want our record to pop up and be equally as exciting yeah, or, or not yeah. somehow like throw us out of the groove going like, whoa, what was that? You know, but, you know, if somebody is particularly putting up a link to shop their record or something, yeah, we'll we'll low we'll roll a little extra low end off. You know, nice. just because because we know that the speaker systems that the people are going to be monitoring that on A&R guys or, you know, product managers, you know, managers, you know, they're not going to be listening on on headphones, you know, at home or, you know, on their big speakers. They're listening to it on their phone. Yeah. They're, you know, so or maybe earbuds and you don't want that low end crapping out. You want to give it a nice, clean bottom end. So interesting. So um, Rockstar is another little tidbit studio hack that I like to do is I use something called NiceCast to actually cast over Wi-Fi a 320MP3 or AAC file, I guess. I think it's 320MP3 of the mix while I'm working, and I'll pull that up on an iPhone and listen to it on the speaker just to see what's happening, you know, see if it's screwing it up or if I'm missing something. You just have to remember as you may, as you're mixing and you're sending out that nice cast signal or any one of these, you know, streaming device, you know, software devices that, you know, allow the remote mixing to happen. uh, You got to remember that the people on the other end, what are they check with them? What are they listening to? You know, are they listening on earbuds on their phone? Right. You know, or, or or do they have this patched into a set of speakers? You know, because they're going to be making comments back to you about that based upon their listening environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, in my case, I would just be referencing it myself just to sort of see what it's doing. You know, right? Okay. But yeah. it, that is kind of a fun way to 
you know, not exactly real time, but close to real time, hear what's going on through the internet in different places yep, on absolutely. different systems. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's jump to another question that comes up in mastering. What do we need to know about the stuff that we don't hear? In other words, tell us about metadata. What are those oh, weird, yeah. weirdo codes <laughs> that we're supposed to have in there? So that our, I mean, what are we going to not make money with our song? Yeah, ISRCs. You know, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, especially from an MP3 standpoint, everybody can download a free MP3 tag editor. You know, you should be putting as much information in the notes section as I would put the, your entire lyrics in the notes section. Because if anybody's searching the Internet and wants to find, you know, hey, I, I want to find a song about um, Marilyn Monroe whatever, you know, it's her birthday coming up. I don't want to, you know, radio station wants to play something they do a search. If it's not in your metadata, how are they going to find it? If it's, you know, if it's not the title of your song, how are they going to find it? Load that metadata up with, with everything you can so that it's searchable. You know, the band name, the artist, you know, maybe the writers, if it, it, you know, um, lyrics, mm -hmm. a story along with it. You'd be surprised what you, what the search engines will find. And then you show up for that. So when and where do we do that? Is that something we do before we deliver to you for mastering or does that happen no. later? Well, we, we try to get that information ahead of time. We, you know, we, we, it's, it's part of our, you know, our, our scheduling form is, you know, do you have ISRCs, you know, give us proper CD text, you know, information, proper capitalization and punctuation, you know, all that kind of stuff, because you, you know, you don't want to be, you know, sending this off for pressing and then finding out that when you get the pressing back that, you know, oh, we didn't want any capitals on it or something, right. you know. So by all means, get that get that information ahead of time. It's kind of almost a little bit, you know, part of the mastering process is making everybody start, you know, thinking seriously about their product. And it's like, oh, yes, yeah, song titles. Is that the title? I don't know. We're still thinking. All right. Well, you know, just let us know when you've got that figured out, you know. <laughs> All so, right, so some of that data, if that data went to you, some of it is going to show up on a CD and some of it is going to show up on an MP3 for online streaming? Right. We'll, we'll embed ISRCs onto, you know, all WAV files and we'll put as much metadata into the MP3s as is reasonable. I mean, you know, it's really not a big deal for us to put all that information in, but you can change it yourself anyway uh, from an MP3 standpoint. You'd have a hard time finding the software, I think, to be able to embed your ISRCs. Right. But uh, I probably but should have started with this. I should have led with this. But what in the world is an ISRC? International Standard Recording Code. Um, it was a, it was a number that was invented years ago that um, was used quite widely in Europe for tracking radio play. The United States never really adopted it, so it kind of sat by the the sidelines. But now, obviously it's like a fingerprint you know it's it's a it's a part of the process of tracking your song's playability it's purchasing all of that online stuff you have to have an isrc your digital distributor will put one on there for you if, if you if you don't have them they, then they'll probably charge you for them so and it lives in a wave file and it lives in an mp3 or just in one of the two you can you can put it yes in both you can you know um uh, you can put it anywhere in you want it within the, the metadata for your um, MP3s as well. There's a spot for it, but there's only one place for it in a WAV file. Um, the, I don't know the, uh, in particular, I, I guess maybe the Sonar software that we use automatically embeds them into it. I'm not really sure. Right. I think they make a stand, they do, I think they make a standalone ISRC editor for WAV files, probably as, uh, you know, mixing engineers, you might want to start thinking about embedding those in. 
you know, we can see them too as, as they pop up for us if you're sending them embedded into the WAV files. But we normally try to get that information on a, on a metadata sheet ahead of time. And so um, not to put you on the spot, but where do we go to get an ISRC code to put to deliver them to you before. Oh wow! Well, is, is, isn't it? Is it isrc.org? Uh, our org in the United States. There, you know, every there's a different organization that um, for different territories. So you'll have to check with your within your territory for it. I would just you know Google isrc numbers. Okay. You know, and find out. As I recall, because again, I don't do this regularly. Um, have to deal with isrc codes. But I think you do just go to their website and then yep. you, you enter in song titles and it spits out a code, which you can use. And I don't remember if it costs money. Or it not. does. It does yeah. cost money. Well, there you yeah. go. Now we know yeah. it costs money. <laughs> and quite frankly, you know, you, you can use your digital distributor to assign those. You know, there, there's no real benefit. It's not like you make more money by having your own codes. You know, if you're, if you're an artist, get serious about it. You know, yeah, sign up to have a, a registrant code. Yeah. Um, you know, you, if you are using CD Baby, for example, they probably have that built into the process of uploading stuff to them. Yeah. And then they can provide that for you, you know, because I think it's a maybe a, for an album might be about $150 between getting the registrant code and then the numbers you're going to need. It might be about $150 or something like that. So, you know, whereas maybe it would only be 30 or $40 for CD Baby, you know, and if it's your first release, it, it again, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't give anybody else really any rights to your music. It's just it's just a number so you can track your your sales and your playability. Cool. All right. So Rockstars, just a reminder, get your ISRC codes before you deliver your mixes to mastering. Um, if you're just the mix engineer, that's really going to be the producer and the artist's responsibility anyway, but they are going to ask you what they need. So now you know more than you might have before. And make sure that you've got as much metadata together or that you're letting the producer and artist know that they should collect all this metadata and deliver that to the mastering engineer as well. And all that detailed stuff there's room for it inside MP3s. In fact, you can add it yourself just using iTunes and other formats like that later if you want. But in this case, I, I think you yeah, do it. I, I mean, I think it's a good idea. Like when, you know, the band is bugging you during the mix, just, you know, hand them a sheet of paper said how, you know, where is all this information, <laughs> you know, and may, and this way that they'll leave you alone as they start scrambling to try to figure this stuff out. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, so Alan, um, last question, and then we'll take a break and come back, come in for the jam session. But what have we, I not known to ask you about mastering yet? What have we not covered that, that we still need to know about? Yeah. Good question, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, I, I guess the thing to, rem uh, the thing I try to pe tell people is that, you know, if you're working in a workstation, just, you know, the headroom is, is paramount. It just, you know, please leave, leave yourself headroom. Even if you're going to put a two bus compressor on or something, uh, try to record and not record in at full, full, you know, scale digital, try to leave five, six, 10 dB on your peaks. You'd be surprised. It does, you know, the signal to noise ratio is not going to get worse. There's way more noise involved in that. And when that gets, when that mix or that product gets to mastering, it's just going to be more malleable. We're going to be able to work it more. We're going to really be able to do what you're going to pay us for. Yeah. The signal to awesomeness ratio goes up. Is that what you're it, saying? It, yeah, it, it does. You know, I think it's, there's a lot of insecurity along the way of, of using a lot of processing, you know, on tracks just to get things to sit and to get it right. When in fact, moving some faders, riding that, my God, the amount of automation that is possible in the workstations is just unbelievable compared to what great records were made with. 
But I, I would say just, you know, I mean, you, you, it's probably something a mastering engineers say all the time. Just leave dynamics, leave dynamics, you know, yeah. not because we want to squash them, but we need it to be able to work our tools. All right. So here is the last question that I would like to ask. So I think the first thing we wonder about is, and I remember this distinctly, which is like, man, I sure wish I could hear a mix before mastering and after mastering, because learning how to mix, you're sort of trying to get it to this place and you're, you have this feeling that mastering makes everything sound better. So then you, what you want to know as a mixer is like, well, when have I made the mix sound good enough right. that, that that's where it's supposed to be? and allow mix, mastering to make it sound the rest of the way better. Yeah, I, I think the, there used to be a great process for this. And it was it was called being an assistant engineer. And, you know, you were a fly on the wall and you were, you know, witnessing other engineers, you know, do mixing in your control room that you were aware of. And you got used to what that dynamic was supposed to sound like. But these days, I don't, you know, that's that's not really an option for a lot of people. So how do you do that? It's the communication with your mastering engineer. You know, um, again, you know, send them a file, let them hear it. Very often I'll get a file. I, you know, I may not sit down and spend an hour working on it, but I'll throw it through the chain. I'll, you know, while, you know, in the morning, I'll pop it through and maybe send you it back an MP3 or something like that. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's in my best interest to make your record sound as great as possible as well. I don't want to just get done with it as quickly as possible. It's, it's about, you know, the whole team being successful. So, you know, if you're unsure, send your mastering engineer a file, send them two. say, you know, I just, I just did it yesterday with somebody. He has, a, you know, something that he's just got, you know, all excited about on his two bus and he, and he sent it to me and you know what? It actually sounded better. I was like, good, that's great. Keep, keep it on, keep, keep mixing. Cause that's not hurting. Yeah. Well, I think there's a sense initially that the things you appreciate in a re finished record might come from mastering and you know, you're not sure how to make them come from you in the mixing process. And, and I have had mastering engineers tell me in the past, just make it sound the way you want it to sound, which is really what you're saying. And then deliver that to mastering, you know, don't, don't it, it, try and not make go for what you're trying to go right. for. Yeah. You have to have all that emotional energy there. But the, I think the problem is we're so used to hearing a compressed format just as, you know, our population just as, you know, as we walk around, everything is hyper compressed yeah. that that's what we're very used to. And that's why I say, you know, you know, I kind of grew up in the industry, you know, listening to the playback of a Studer A80 half inch playing back through a Neve console, you know, through big JBL bi-radial monitors. And it just, you know, it sounded awesome. And you yeah. always want to try to get back to that. Don't, you know, don't necessarily compare your music to, you know, you know, the, the latest, greatest, you know, pop record that's squashed down to an MP3. I mean, ultimately it's got to compete at that level. And, and hopefully that's your mastering engineers, you know, prerogative to get it to there, but you want it to be dynamic. And, and it, the interesting part of it is going back to a lot of reissues that most or a lot of mastering engineers are doing. We're getting asked to pull stuff that we did, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 years ago, and now get them ready for mastered for iTunes or vinyl again. Yeah. And if if we had, you know, fortunately, we'll we have higher resolution backups and not just the squashed versions. And it's so, and you hear, you know, it's so reassuring to hear back and go, wow, this is great. It sounds awesome. You know, again, so the key is talking to your master engineer, getting in communication with them and also having a relationship with them. You know, I mean, you know, when you find somebody that's that's doing a great job for you, you know, Get, get in their face about it. Say, hey, listen, here's what I'm going for on this record. You know, help me. What can I do? You know, get that feedback. Cool, man. Well, uh, Alan, 
This is awesome to have you on the show. We're going to take a break now and come back in a moment for the jam session. Rockstars, before we go, I want to remind you that we will include the links to all the stuff we're talking about in the show notes, which you can find at recordingstudiorockstars.com. Search Alan Douches and you will it'll take you right there. That's D-O-U-C-H-E-S. Or if you're just on your iPhone, your, your listening device, your, your mobile, just click through right there and you should see the show notes right in the podcast app you're using. And it's a clickable link. You can just hit it with your finger. It'll take you right there. We'll see you guys in just a sec for the jam session. Hey, rock stars. I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Mike Tech Audio, right here in Nashville, Tennessee. Mike Tech is a maker of awesome microphones and recording equipment. Whether you're looking for a simple plug and play USB mic or a high end condenser tube mic, Mike Tech has you covered. Mike Tech is the only mic I've used for this podcast, recording studio rock stars and nearly 100 episodes. You're hearing my voice right now on the Mike Tech Procast SST. Thanks to you, rock stars, for listening and to Mike Tech Audio for the sound of over 350,000 downloads. Check them out at MikeTechAudio.com. Cheers. Hey, rock stars. We're about to jump into the jam session again. And uh, Alan, are you ready to jam? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Cool, man. Um, hey, you know what? Before we go, we were just discussing this during the uh, the break there. Rock stars. Alan has been kind enough to provide that metadata checklist that we were talking about that you can, when you're mixing a record, you can make sure you collect all this information and whether you embed it in yourself or whether it goes to the mastering engineer, this will be a great resource for you. So we'll include a link to that. You can download that for free at rsrockstars.com slash metadata. M-E-T-A-D-A-T-A. So I'll put that link in the show notes. You can just click on that and get that right now. So we'll jump in here. So, and thank you for doing that, Alan. When you started out in recording, what was holding you back, man? Uh, you know, uh, interesting thing is location, I think, to, to consider. You know, if you're, if you're going to put together a commercial entity, you know, you've, you've got to be easy to get to. You've got to have access. You've got to have, you know, stores around you, things like that. Our first location where we were, we kind of thought it was kind of cool. We were in the boondocks and, you know, and we found out a lot of people didn't like coming to us there, although we loved being there, you know, maybe it's changed now. People love doing that kind of escape thing. Uh, I think that uh, that was a holdback. What's, um, what's the first, second and third rule in, in real estate? <laughs> location, location, location. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, 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 ma it matters. I mean, you know, you can do, you know, all this stuff online and, and et cetera. But, you know, you look at a lot of the best records. People are all communicating together. You know, if you're a young and up and coming engineer, probably best to get to a metropolitan city. You know, one of the major ones. Nice. Cool. And especially since sometimes the advice is to go to where the musicians are and start meeting people that way. If yeah. your studio and your your place for recording and mastering is close, everybody's going to be easier to start out networking. Yeah, ab absolutely. All right. So now how about some of the best advice you received? Um, trust your feelings. You know, um, trust your feelings because ultimately you're going to need to repeat your feelings and become successful. If you become successful by trusting your feelings, you'll sustain that success. But if you're guessing or copying what you're doing, you're just going to have to constantly be looking for inspiration from elsewhere rather than just trusting what you feel is best for the project. Okay, cool, cool. Is that similar to sort of trusting your gut? You know, same thing where like if, you, sure. if something yeah. seems wrong to you, you just need to trust it? 
what are you pretending not to know? Exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, again, you know, it, it, you may make mistakes. You've got to learn from those mistakes. But I think, you know, I've witnessed, you know, working with producers and, and, and record labels and A&R guys, you know, they have to trust their feelings. If you're guessing and copying, you're not going to be able to replicate it when you really need to, you know, learn how to trust those feelings. Be smart about it. Make the mistakes. Say, OK, you know what? that vocal level was too low. All right. You know what? I got to check it on mono on an oratone or whatever, or, yeah. or check it in whatever source that you use. I got to, I have to do that check. If I don't do this, I'm going to be, I'm going to sorry, I'm gonna be sorry about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. All right. So now how about a recording tip hack or secret sauce, something the rock stars could use today on their next session? I'd say, you know, I just said it checking things in mono. Um, I think uh, a lot of people are surprised when, you know, it, you know, if it's a, a phone, a portable device or, you know, an iPad or, a, or, a, or you know, or a, a tower or something that when they hear their music in mono, they're like, what happened to those guitar parts or something? I think, that, you know, if, if you're a lot of the older consoles used to have mono s switches on them. I don't know if there's a, is there a plugin that gives you a mono choice? I or think something? there are. And I won't I won't name it off the top of my head. Yeah. but We can find some. There definitely yeah. are. Check the mix in mono. It, it, you know, you'd be surprised how many sources. You know, if you're if you're, you're if you're listening to a stream somewhere, it's probably being streamed in a in a mono way. So now, why know? would mono affect levels of things versus stereo? Uh, things on the side go down three dB. You know, they they become quieter. You know, even though it's summed to mono, things that are hard panned will be lower in that mono mix, and now, things in the center why, will come why up. Why do they get lower? It's an oh, electronic, it's just, it's just a summing. It's a, it's the function of, you know, when you have something in both the left and the right speaker, it's doubled, it's 3 dB louder. Kick drum and snare drum, it's in both the left and the right. right so you're doubling the power of it, so it's 3 dB up. So right. whereas your guitars that are hard pan, perhaps, which sound awesome and wide and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, when you're listening in headphones, it's great, but then up, you click that mono source and your guitars disappear. You know, I don't think I knew that for decades. <laughs> like I did, but I didn't. I think that I just kept beating myself up about making a judgment call in the studio and then going out to the car or going to some other environment and, you know, the vocal was too low or something wasn't right. And I was like, how come I keep mixing the vocal wrong? You know? Yeah. And it was, yeah. it was, I think it was that it was just not understanding that I needed to have that mono reference while I was mixing in the studio. Yeah. A lot of mixing guys, you know, do maybe even their final tweaks of volumes in, in a mono speaker, you know, and, and, and that's another thing. It's like mono with two speakers is a little deceiving. And sometimes if you can switch to mono and turn one speaker off, that's, that's really effective. It just, yeah. It's fascinating. So yeah, I know yeah. I've also heard that mono and two speakers it can be valuable because it gives you a mono effect if the two speakers are literally stacked on top of one another, but right. it doesn't sort of phase cancel the reverbs. Right. Right. But anyway, that's, we're getting esoteric now. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now how about a hardware tool that you want to talk about? Something that is always great to have on a session. Could uh, be a recording thing, could be something totally different. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to name a couple of things here. Dear to me, I, I have a couple of pieces. Um, the TC6000 Mark II, just, you know, an amazing hardware box to, to use. In the analog world, um, the Pendulum 6386, which I believe is now called an ES8, um, the very mute compressor that they have. You know, if you get to a show, try that thing out. It's it's an unbelievable compressor. I'm not just throwing props his way, but Greg Gualtieri at Pendulum Audio made 
an amazing compressor there. It's just the attack time, release times are so variable, very usable presets, great stuff. Clocking, make sure your system is clocked properly, please. You know, I mean, if you have multiple interfaces, you know, make sure that they're properly clocked, you know, uh, and maybe even the same source. Don't don't put your overhead on one of them and the overhead on the other one. Try to keep stereo pairs on your same interface. Yeah, um, good, good tip right there. Uh, and a, a great piece of gear is, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but the Tascam DA3000, the uh, SACD recorder, the DSD recorder, we have two of them and um, we send one out on loan. If somebody is summing an analog or mixing on an analog board, you know, it's great to get a piece of half inch tape coming back to your way of the, with the mix, but half inch tape is expensive. You know, quarter inch tape is expensive. Mm-hmm. Tascam DA30, I mean, we just found one the other day. I think it was new in the box for about 800 bucks. This thing just sounds unbelievable. It's a one rack, pe- rack space piece mixed down. It does, you know, multiple um, PCM data streams. I think it goes up to 192. But the, the beauty of it really is the, uh, the DSD level layers. Mm-hmm. It can record at, you know, 2.8 or 5.6 megahertz. And it just, it captures all of that analog glory that you're summing in the analog domain on. Interesting. It's a great box. Interesting. Yes. People will ask me, like, you know, they'll buy a used quarter-inch machine or something. They'll think, like, oh, maybe that's the best way. Uh, unless you're going to get a great machine and you're really, you know, planning on spending money on tape, check out the Tascam D830. And I think Korg makes one, too. I, I, we never heard that one, but... Uh, we love it. It's just an it's an awesome box. Wait, now you said the Tascam DA30, and it's sitting right behind me. Oh, That's I'm sorry, DA3000. Yeah, DA3000. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool, I'm cool. sorry. Yeah, no, numbers. Right. How many numbers do we go around batting around in our head every day? Uh, my Tascam DA30 is the old ancient wow, data yeah. machine. It's my first piece of gear. It's still sitting yeah. in the rack. It doesn't work anymore. Then they have the fort, yeah. Well, that's a great tip. All right. So, um, and I think that what you're talking about is using that DA3000 to capture the mix rather than routing the mix back into your DAW right, right. and record it on a pair of tracks or something. Exactly. I mean, and also don't, if you're mixing in the box and you're not summing analog, don't take it out of your DAW to go to a DA3000, you know, or, right. or to, you know. And, and for that matter, also people think that sometimes with tape too, they're thinking like, well, I'll just come out of my DAW and, you know, I've got this, you know, I won't mention a brand, but, you know, mediocre quarter inch machine. I'm going to deliver it that way. It's like, well, if you, you know, we can hit tape here. Maybe maybe it's better that we, you know, we hit our machine during the mastering process rather than you recording it to that mediocre machine. Unless, of course, you know, you there's a certain level of compression, a biasing trick you want to try, something you want to do specifically to to create your sound. Yeah. You know, and again, that all goes back to talking to your mastering engineer, you know. Yeah, good, good tip. Yeah, All right, now yeah. how about a uh, software tool, something you want to talk about, something exciting? You know, I'm not really up on soft, a lot of software tools. I mean, the, the tools that we use most, I mean, you know, we, we have, you know, things, but um, most of our, our digital processing is either the Weiss hardware pieces, uh, the TC6000. But I got to say, the, there's some great restoration software out there. We just got the Isotope restoration bundle. Is that the um, RX? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty sweet. You know, you got to spend some time. Yeah. You got to spend some time to, to figure it out. 
I think I may have been the only person on the planet that knew how to use uh, DigiDesign's uh, Dinner or the Binner plugin, um, right. which you know, which I've used on countless you know restoration projects over the course of a couple two decades, probably. Sonic Solutions, you know, they had their no noise. We had that too, and a lot of that stuff is just not user friendly at all. The Isis Hope uh, restoration bundle is is really usable, and and the de humming filter. Don't send. I mean, if you just it's worth it just to buy the de hum filter. You know, mm -hmm. if you had a 60 cycle hum in your track or something. Awesome. That's, yeah. that's great stuff. I use Isotope RX. I'll be using the, um, the dialogue denoiser plugin for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great tool. Cool. Great. All right. So um, now how about a resource for the business side of this? Um, you haven't been doing this for a hobby your whole life. Do you have some online resource or do you have some advice you want to share about being smart with business? Uh, you know, great staff you know, make it easy on yourself, get some great assistance. I think something that's a great resource online is the all music guide. I don't know if everybody's checked that out. It's a pretty ubiquitous site that a lot of people have, but, you know, checking out who's working on your records and stuff. Um, it's a great resource to find that information out, you know, when, when records were recorded, what engineer was on them, you know, what are the challenges of hiring staff or finding an assistant? Let's say somebody is, doesn't have anybody assisting them yet, and they want to start looking for an assistant to help them with their mixing from their studio, for example. Uh, I, th I think you have to really set the boundaries right away. You know, like it was uh, someone, I think George Massenberg said it at a conference once, and he's, he, if somebody asked him if he takes on assistance, he said, yeah, but when you're, when you're there on the first day, don't ask if you can mix the song, you know. Tell them, listen, you're not going to be touching the gear for, you know, two months or something. I need, this is what I need you to do. I need you to, you know, work on, you know, cleaning this place up, you know, clean the dishes, you know, wash the dishes. And then as they do that job, you have to reward them. You have to say, thanks, man. Hey, listen, let me show you what I'm doing on this trick. Mm -hmm. You know, I found that that's always helpful. You know, when you see somebody doing something useful to your facility, go and pat them on the back and then show them something, show them a trick. Yeah. Let them also know how each of those mundane tasks is, adds up to the, the whole, which is creating and delivering a great record. Hopefully, yeah, you know. it is it, yeah, having an environment that, you know, people like to be in is is essential. You know, you've, you've got to feel comfortable. You, yeah. you know, artists want to feel like they're in a creative space. All right. So now how about an organizational resource? Do you use anything cool online that helps you keep all your shit together? Um, you know, we use Google Docs. I think that's an amazing once you you know, kind of get used to using that and you can share those documents. You know, we have a, a couple of engineers here and we'll we'll share scheduling information that way, even though we have a, an iCal calendar and thing like that. It's just a lot. You can put a lot of notes on the Google Docs, you know, uh, talk about things, you know, mm -hmm. about what we're doing. You know, uh, hey, I've got the half inch machine aligned for this. Don't you know, can you make sure, you know, if you're going to use it, let me know so I can come back and at least the alignment will be the same. You know. All right. So let me, let me, let me geek out a little more with you. So you wrote that note just now. That's a memo. That's your inner, your all inner office memo, right? Right. How, how does everybody else actually see that note? Um, we're just used to looking for it. You know, um, we're just, you know, we just, we have a one big notepad in, in a sense that we're just, um, used to looking, we used to do it in Mac mail. We would just have a note page and, you know, just if you're coming in, just check the notes, you know, 
look, right. look to so see what's going on. It's the because equivalent this, of leaving a, a notepad, a legal pad on the console that the next person comes in and sees. You're just, everybody knows that they should pop up Google Docs and just look in the, at right, the top. Exactly. There. Because I, I may be on my way home at seven or eight o'clock at night and Jamal, one of the other engineers is coming in at, you know, 11 to, you know, to work on a project. And, you know, I, I'd be, oh, I forgot to leave him that note. Well, he, he knows when he comes in, he's going to check the Google Doc. Okay, you know? cool. That's a great tip. I like that. Yeah. It's like, it's like high tech and really basic, just like, you know, person to person at the same time. Right. And some, cause sometimes we don't know if somebody's coming in or, you know, because we, you know, we do work around the clock. So it's just easier to just leave information, you know, about things yeah. like, you know, Hey, check this, that, that tube was a little funky on me. I got a little bit of sporadic noise. Check all your fades, you know, make sure they're, they're all clean. Yeah. So Rockstars, I just made this up, but this could be a way to maybe do that too. Cause you could have, when you start, you could leave the dock up, up on the screen of the computer, or you could even make it so that it automatically opens your browser and the homepage is that docket, you know, uh, that's for a good example. Idea. maybe yeah. so that when somebody starts up the computer, it's the first thing they see. Sometimes right. I use the yellow, uh, the post-it sticky notes on my screen of the computer. I'll use those a lot for notes to people. Yeah. Um, or, you know, mine says turn off Dropbox before <laughs> tracking. <laughs> well, the, uh, that's the thing. It's like the, our main CPUs don't have a lot of other programs on them. You know, they're just right. they're just set up to run and be doing what they do. So, you know, we're not going to have you know, you really got to go into production and look on the Google Docs page. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, in my world and probably a lot of our listeners world, that computer's doing everything you can think of, you know? Yep. 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 But, it, but it's probably a dedicated studio computer, but it probably is still browsing the internet and, you know, watching training videos and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, let's go last two questions are hypothetical, but um, this one is imagine yourself starting over and you needed a simple setup to record. You needed to find people to record music with, and then you needed to make ends meet. What would be your suggestions for those three things? Um, they, they might all coincide in this, in a similar place or two places, maybe, um, record stores. We're just now doing some live recording at a, a local record shop, but I mean, it's a pretty big shop. They got about 6,000 square feet. They're one of the largest, uh, vinyl shops on the Hudson river. And, um, you know, just hanging out there and you, you meet musicians, you get to talk to people, you're, you're definitely going to find somebody that's going to know somebody. They allow you to leave all your business cards, you know, and, and information. And the same thing with music stores, you know, go into your music store, your local music store, let them know what you do, you know, leave your business cards there. Uh, you know, you've got it, you've got it. Nobody's going to just come and knock on your door and ask, Hey, do you guys record here? You got to get out into that world. And, and I think record stores are a wonderful place because you're going to find people that care about music and music stores, you know, bands that are looking to buy gear. That's cool. That's a great tip. I like that. And, and let's get people back into record stores, which is awesome. <laughs> oh, it's, you know, it, it's, it's, it is, it's, I mean, we just started hanging out up there with them at, at some point. And then they were like, they have a stage, they have a stage and a full, you know, PA system. And we're now recording shows there and we're doing limited edition, uh, uh, vinyl runs, you know, oh, so we're nice. Yeah. We're recording it. We're, uh, mixing it down in the back in the analog and we're cutting it to lacquers and, uh, we're doing limited editions. So very cool. So that, that sums yeah. it all up. That's the recording setup, which is probably whatever you need to capture the mics from the stage and a couple of room mics. Uh, that's the yeah. meeting the people and that's the making the ends meet by selling it back at the store. 
And that's key. You know, live recordings without room mics are awful, you know. So, you know, you, a lot of people have, you know, they'll take the feeds from the boards, but they'll forget to put up, you know, a stereo pair somewhere, yeah. you, you know. And also an interesting thing is don't point the stereo pair at the speakers, you know, at the main stacks. Point them elsewhere. Get get the audience reaction. Get the sound of the room. Yeah. You know, um, we'll we'll put a we'll do a, a two pairs. We'll put one back in the room catching the audience, and we'll put one kind of like behind the speaker stacks, pointed out into the audience. Oh, cool. Good idea. Audience mics from up above the stage. I've seen those right. before too. Yeah, they so sound great. I, I did some of that in the past, and I remember feeling like. It was nice to put up a couple of great room mics that really got the the power and the energy of the stage, knowing that I could rely on the close mics to just bring forward the detail of the voices or the guitars right. or the, you know, yeah. the point on the kick and the snare, but right. you know, really try and make those just reinforce the room mics. Yeah. Put your best mics up as the room mics. Yeah. All right, cool. So now um, last question, hypothetical two, we're going to take the studio way back machine and you're going to go back. Uh, I don't know if we were going to meet you before or after you forgot to tell Grandmaster Flash about Aerosmith, <laughs> but um, you're going to go back and find young Alan and tap yourself on the shoulder, turn around. What are you doing here, older Alan? You say, well, I've come to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the studio yourself one day. What would you tell yourself? Learn how to play piano. I like it. Yeah. And, and followed immediately by learn to play every instrument a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, but so, so many times in the studio, you, you know, you don't have to be an accomplished, you know, player on any particular instrument, but, um, you know, so much of the modern music we make is derived from keyboards and stuff. And if, if you don't have a inkling as to how to play that, you know, then you better, you better learn fast. I would say start, to, you know, hand and exercises, just, you know, 15 minutes, three times a week, just, just practicing something, anything. And then, you know, sit down behind a drum kit, just, you know, sit down for 10 or 15 minutes. It's going to sound stupid the first time you do it, but, um, you know, you do it four or five, six times, suddenly you got a beat. Now, yeah. you know, maybe somebody needs, you know, a, a, just a very simple drum beat play played or something. You can go out there and play it, you know, uh, I, and you, often you're waiting for musicians to do something, you know, a singer's writing words or something. You have time. You don't have to be, you know, uh, checking your Twitter feed, checking whatever. Go to an instrument, sit down at that instrument. You're sitting in a studio full of instruments. Go yeah, play them. Exactly. That's I mean, at the first studio I worked at, we had a seven foot Yamaha grand piano. And I I started sitting down at it saying like every day, if every day after I clean up for the session, if I just sit down and do a 10 minute, you know, lesson on the piano, I'm going to be brilliant in 10 years. Well, I never kept it up. You know, so I can <laughs> you know, I mean, I could do a little bit of piano, but I wish I were more accomplished. You yeah. Know? So, so we, um, so yeah, that's how we can account for your lack of piano brilliance now is. <laughs> yes, that's it. Um, well, so the piano is also a wonderful instrument because it really, it, it's an arranging tool too. And it really yeah. helps you understand what's going on in music and arrangements and instrumentation yep. and stuff. And I would go so far as to say, learn, you know, which piano keys correspond to the bass strings on a bass guitar yeah. and an electric guitar and, what else is there? <laughs> well, a fiddle. I don't know. 
Absolutely. You know, you, that you learn that range, you know, and, you know, you always have to leave room for things. You know, it's a, a common thing. You know, you watch an arranger working with a, you know, a orchestra or a, or a small group of musicians and they're always telling them, you know, get out of the way of the vocal. You know, no, no. Open that up. You know, move, move, move me up an inversion over there. You know, I need room for my vocal to be sitting in this arrangement, you know, and the, and it's such a the, the piano is a visual tool. It's really easy to see that you don't really see it on a guitar. You know, you don't see that where that vocal is really sticking in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great advice, man. Well, Alan, thank you so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars. What an amazing bunch of stuff you've shared with us. We're really pleasure. thrilled to have you on the show. Um, Rockstars, I would like to remind you that you can get Alan's free metadata cheat sheet. Now, this is going to be something where you, you just download it and it's going to be a, a reminder for you, which you can just keep right there in the, in the studio for all the information you need to get about each song as you finish a mix and make sure it's there. You know, you can, it'll be something you can give to your producer, your artist, and help them out as you're moving on towards the mastering stage. So that's a great tool. That will be at rsrockstars.com slash meta data, M-E-T-A-D-A-T-A. -A -A. And uh, so I'll include that link right in the show notes. And again, you can find the show notes right on your phone, your listening device. Just look for it there. You should see a clickable link. You can just hit it with your finger. If you're driving, maybe pull over first before you do it. <laughs> but, uh, but I promise to not make you have to type. So that's my goal. And um, Alan, tell our listeners how they can find you, learn more about you. How can they book you for their next mastering session? You know, our website, westwestsidemusic.com, our email, www.sm at mac.com is our abbreviation. Look for us on Facebook. You know, we're, we're there. Uh, I, I forget what those handles are. I'll, I'll probably put them on the metadata sheet. But uh, yeah, get, you know, by all means, get in touch with your mastering engineer. Be communicative with him. You know, let him know what you're, what you're looking for. Um, I would suggest that your mastering engineer needs to communicate back to you. So Rockstars, if you're not getting a response yeah, or if you get no, uh, I don't know how you want to talk about revisions, but you know, maybe if you do a good communication beforehand, you don't need to worry about revisions so much, but you know, just getting a response from your mastering engineer so that you don't feel like you're just sending it into an abyss and getting it back later. And what you get is what you got and tough luck, you know? Right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alan. You rock, man. My pleasure. We'll see you around the studio. Thanks for listening, Rockstars. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444. And I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.